You are listening to A Beautiful Mess, a new sermon series by Crosspoint Peachtree City. For more information, please visit our website at www.crosspointptc.com. I'm Jason uh, Piffle. I'm one of the pastors here. Jamie is uh, out for a few days, went down to Orlando uh, with our other congregations down there for a big elder get-together type of thing. And so uh, I'm pitch-hitting for him today. I'm excited to be able to do that. Uh, We are in the middle of a sermon. Actually, we're in the end of a series called A Beautiful Mess. And uh, we are cruising along. We are now in chapter 13. Some of you have probably been thinking, is this ever going to end? Yes, it is. Before Christmas time, we will be in chapter 16 and wrap this up, and then we'll be on to other things in January. But I think this series has been a really amazing series. Um, If you think about kind of everything that we've covered from the beginning of 1 Corinthians to now chapter 13, uh, we've hit a lot of different topics and a lot of very controversial topics, everything from sexual immorality. Um, We had a guy who was sleeping with his dad's uh, wife, Um, Kind of a problem, probably. Uh, We had uh, people eating meat sacrificed to idols. Uh, We had people saying, uh, my rights are more important than other people's rights. And all these things were just kind of coming unravel. And the church at that time in Corinth was a mess. Um, But like our little thing says here, is a beautiful mess. Because I think Jesus enters into this and he is really working through Paul to kind of right the ship. And to get us all tracking in the, the right direction. I do appreciate um, one of the cool things about us kind of tracking through all this. I appreciate being a part of a church that can do a book study like this and not skip things. Um, maybe you've had this experience, I know I have, where um, it, it is a tendency or it is a lot easier for preachers, people like me, to kind of come up against a heavy passage and be like, you know what, let's just kind of skim over that. Maybe just kind of jump over that to the next thing uh, because it's just uh, maybe I don't feel confident about what to say or uh, we don't. And so a lot of times that's what happens. But I think Jamie has done an amazing job of just plowing through, of just be like, you know what? We're going to go after it and I'm just going to do the best I can possibly do. And so I think we are very blessed to have him and, um, and I guess... You have me this week. So, uh, so I'm going to do the best I can, but I've got a much easier passage than Jamie has had. Uh, I, I get kind of the, the climax to the book of Corinthians. And Jamie was actually a little bit upset about this uh, when he heard that I was going to get to do 1 Corinthians chapter 13 because he's been kind of dealing with all these difficult things. And he's like, 13, you get that. Like, what's up with that? Why do you get like the climax of the entire book and you get the punchline and I've got to deal with all the hard things? And so I am very happy about that, and I think that is a great thing, because uh, usually the second guy gets uh, Labor Day, Memorial Day, uh, Chris, you know, like all the off holidays, Columbus Day, things like that. So I'm, I'm excited to be able to carry some meat this morning, because I think it's going to be really, really great. So we're going to be cruising through chapter 13. There's Bibles in front of you. If you don't have one, you can pull that out. We're going to be on page 623. It makes it easy for you to find. The rest of you guys are on your own. Good luck trying to find that. It's in the New Testament, in like the last uh, third of the Bible. Uh, that gives you a little bit of help, uh, 1 Corinthians 13. Well, most of you guys have probably heard about the love chapter. Uh, 
I, you know, there's all kinds of songs. What's love got to do? What is love? I mean, I thought about singing some for you today, but I decided against that because I thought it'd be horrible and no one would ever come back. So we're going to move right along. But you've probably heard this chapter in like a million weddings. Raise your hand if you've heard this in a wedding. And me too. I actually had to go back and uh, watch our wedding video to make sure that I did not use this, and we did not use this in our wedding, and we did not. We used the one on submission. So, <laughs> not sure it was better. So, but anyway, we, uh, so anyway, most of the time when we think about this uh, chapter, we think about weddings. And uh, honestly, when I got this passage and I read this, I knew this is what the passage was. I, my takeaway was something like, Great. I get to talk about what everybody's heard a million times. That's going to be a blast instead of unearthing something new. And then I started studying this passage, and I realized that this passage definitely applies to, to marriages. I totally agree with that. But there's nothing in this passage that says it's about marriages. Not a single thing. And uh, if you think about the context of where we've come from to where we're going, uh, last week Jamie talked about uh, the body of Christ, you know? So we have one body, many members. We have different gifting that kind of makes up the full body of Christ, right? Uh, and that was, a, that was a major, major deal in last chapter. And then next chapter, Jamie has the privilege of talking about tongues and prophecy. Yay for him. And uh, so he gets to unearth all those things for you guys next week. And smack dab in the middle, it doesn't make sense that somebody be like, and then we have the marriage chapter. Like, that wouldn't make any sense. And so really what Paul is going to get at here is he's really dealing with this issue of divisiveness. The whole entire book of 1 Corinthians is really about divisiveness. It's about people putting their rights above other people. I'm going to do what I want. I'm not going to enter into the life of other people because it's going to be messy for me. That's the whole entire book is all filled with this. And so as we look at this chapter, it's really the same thing. And he's saying, you know what? If you want to kind of put away divisiveness, let's talk about what really matters and love is what really matters. So let's get right to it. I thought Jonathan did a great job of reciting and talking about uh, this scripture passage. Uh, and I appreciate you doing that, Jonathan. Uh, and so I'm going to cruise on through this. And we're just going to go verse by verse and plug through this. And hopefully by the end of this, we kind of unearth reality. And we kind of unearth what does this chapter really mean in the context of what's going on. So 1 Corinthians uh, 13, chapter 1, like I said... It's what, page 623. We're going to be talking about how love really eternally unites, and we are on verse 1. Here it goes. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You see, what was happening back then in this city, in this church in particular, is that there were di different gifting, different things going on. And a couple of the really kind of more flashy gifts were tongues, prophecy. People were like, whoa, you're a super Christian if you got those kind of things. Healing, different things like this, very miraculous type of things. But if you have the gift of helps, it's like, that's eh, kind of boring. You know what I mean? And I think what the people of Corinth were saying is there's a hierarchy to the gifts. And these things are definitely more important. And these are the things that you should aspire to. And these other things are not. And so when you think about this verse, and it talks about if you have these things, but you don't have love, you're just a noisy gong. You're just a clanging cymbal. Back in those days of uh, Corinthians, the, back in this church here, here's a picture of Corinth, 
pretty much flattened, but this is Main Street in Corinth. And on each side of the street was basically merchants where people would sell different things or maybe they would be building things or weaving different things like this. And so if you can imagine you're with your friend, right? It's like being in the mall and you're walking down the street with your friend and you're having this great conversation and over to the left is somebody who is making bronze helmets. And they're pounding away at this bronze and they're heating it up and they're pounding it and it's just loud and obnoxious. And you look over and you're like, whoa, it's so shrill. Why don't you move to the other side of town? Why do you have to do this right here where I'm having a conversation with my good friend? And I think that's what Paul is equating this to. Is he's saying, you have this experience when you're walking down the street and you understand what this is like. But when you talk about tongues and prophecy being the pinnacle, that's what it's like for everybody else. You are that noisy gong. You are the annoying person who's putting all these things up on a pedestal because you don't have love. Let's go on to the next verse here, verse two, and it continues on. And if I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and knowledge and I have faith so as to remove mountains, but if I don't have love, I am nothing this idea of prophecy is really knowing things that are really hidden from other people. It's kind of this direct revelation from God. It happened all the way through the Old Testament with all these major and minor prophets that were kind of giving the word of God to different people. And that's what he's discussing here. And I think we can apply this in such a way to say the next part is probably maybe a little more relevant. Uh, people who have lots of knowledge are lots and lots and lots of scholarly people who know lots and lots of things about the Bible. And some of those or maybe a lot more than I think, have love and doing it in a loving way. But how many times have we met somebody who knows so many things of the Bible but has not been remotely transformed by that knowledge? Someone who knows all kinds of things, more than like myself by far. But when you meet them, you're just like, ah, oh, just fall so flat. And it just seems so unpersonal and so cold and so harsh. And that's what really what Paul's addressing is saying, you know, you can have this prophetic power and you can understand all these mysteries and knowledge and you can have faith even to move mountains. But if you don't have love, that doesn't mean anything, doesn't mean a thing at all. Verse three, if I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. We can give up every single possession that we have. We can give away our cars and our houses, and we can give all of our money, and we can empty out our investment accounts, and we can just give it all away. But if we do those things for the wrong reason, it means nothing. Because a lot of times we can be generous in order to be noticed, right? That's what we, a lot of times, what we want. We want to give. We want it to be public. We want people to notice, oh, wow, and that somehow gives me so maybe comfort or I feel accepted by those people as a result. So we're just using people, ultimately. And that's what Paul's saying. We can do all these things. It doesn't mean anything. He takes it a step further and says, you can give up your life. You can be a martyr. Like, you could die for the sake of being a Christian and not have love, and it means nothing. What a waste. Don't you think? Can you imagine that? I was trying to think of a good example this week. James and I were discussing this, and... Uh, we thought, there's a whole group of people who do this. There's a whole group of people called ISIS who readily kill themselves for themselves. 
you know? Or to have, be able to have sex with 12 virgin, virgins up in the afterlife. Like, that's their motivation for doing some of these things. And I go, that's not love. Love of yourself, but it doesn't love other people. And it's a bummer. It's a shame that it has to be that way. It doesn't. And so Paul continues on here, and he unpacks each and every one of these things, okay? And he really defines what is love. And this is where I was going to sing the song because it just fit, but we won't do that. Love is patient. Really, it's slow to repay for offenses, right? It's tolerance against other people who have sinned against you. That's really what love is. It's going into a situation where somebody is wrong with you and you don't retaliate. You hold back. Don't you think it's amazing that our God is so patient with us? He slows down this whole entire judgment process to like a snail's pace, right? You think like if God would enter our lives in a way that we want to enter into the lives of other people, would not be very loving, would it? I think this is a, a really great way of putting it. He says, it's, it kind of goes like this. God is patient because he slows down the process. He offers eternal forgiveness to those who enter into a relationship with Jesus. He's not patiently like indifferent. It's not like he hate, he's like, okay, I'm okay with that sin. That's no problem. No big deal. He doesn't ignore our sin, but rather he practices love-motivated self-restraint. I think that's the key to this whole thing. Love-motivated self-restraint. That's really what patience is. And that's why this is a loving thing, to be patient. Love is kind. Continuing in verse 4, kindness is the manner in which we treat other people. You know, it's, it's gentle, it's soft, but it's not weak. It's the way that we lovingly enter into discussions with people when truth needs to come along. We do it with kindness. There's a lot of people in our world, and maybe some of us, who are very good at telling the truth, but very bad at doing it kindly. And so God is saying, if you want to be loving, be kind. Deliver truth with kindness. Do it with gentleness. Do it with patience. And then Paul goes on and tells you what love is not. So here's a few things that it were, but then here's some things that is not. It does not envy. If we find ourselves asking questions like this, why do they have so much? Like, why is life so easy for them? They just seem so put together. They don't struggle with anything in life at all. All those things would really be indicators of envy, right? We are envious of them, and we want those things. But rather, would it not be more uniting to say, you know what? Obviously, God has done something in their lives and has put them in a position like this. Maybe my role is not to be envious of them, but rather to redirect their lives to use those things for the sake of the gospel. What's it look like to leverage your car and your house and your money and all these things that you have been blessed with for the sake of the gospel? What's that look like? To open your home, to have people over your place, and to offer meals and be hospitable. And I think if our perspective is that, then we don't fall into this thing of envy. It doesn't boast. We don't look at ourselves and try to make ourselves look better. We know all these people. These people are, I'm not coining the term, the one-uppers. You know what I'm talking about? Like you're having a conversation, and they're always the ones who, right, have uh, a better story, right? Or they've got a better car, or they have a better neighbors, or their kids are better than you, or whatever it is. They're the one-uppers, right? The people who boast. 
Paul actually uses the actual word for boasting here is windbag, which I think is really kind of funny. Someone who's full of air but empty in substance. He's saying, don't be that. That's not what love is. And I'm sure these kind of people don't draw people to the gospel. Think about it. All these things are meant to unite us, not divide us. And so when we function as a boaster, we are dividing and we are not being loving. Love isn't arrogant. Uh, Arrogance is really about self-pride. It's about self-sufficiency. And uh, really, arrogance or pride was the first sin of the Bible. You know what I mean? It wasn't, that, it wasn't disobedience. It was that um, Adam and Eve decided to choose a life of self-sufficiency. That was really the first sin of the Bible. And the act that showed that was disobedience. Does that make sense, everybody? And so as we think about our lives today and we think about self-sufficiency, we do the same thing. There's many, many people who go through life and go, I don't need God. Like, I can live just fine without him. I can be self-sufficient. And even as Christians, I think we say that we can be self-sufficient from God. And I think we always also engage this in the midst of community. And we say we can be self-sufficient from other people. You know, And I've heard this many, many times. Why do I need the church? Why do I need the church? I can just do this at home. I actually had a guy uh, came a couple weeks ago to my house. And we were having a conversation. He was buying a, a washing machine. And uh, we had this conversation. He's like, I don't need the church. And I was like... Yeah, you do. <laughs> you know, I wanted to sit back and say, your life was not meant to be self-sufficient. It's meant to be lived in community with God and with other people. Love isn't rude. And I'm like five slides behind. Hold on. Love isn't rude. We don't disregard social customs uh, that other people have adopted. You know what I mean? And so when we disregard some of these things, they're not necessarily like bad things, but we all know that generally speaking, when you go into a grocery store, you don't bring your dog. You know what I'm saying? And so like last week I was in the produce aisle at Walmart and there was a lady who had her dog and I was like, I'm pretty sure that's illegal, you know? But socially, like custom-wise, I was like, well, that's kind of gross. I have a dog. That's, I don't think I'd bring my disgusting dog to a grocery store. So, but, you know, things like that are... I think can be perceived as rude, and you're like, ah, but that's just a little simple uh, uh, simple analogy or simple metaphor or story. I don't even know what I'm saying. But, but I think there's other things in culture that we do, and we enter into relationships with other people, and we just don't get things around us, and we don't really have an emotional intelligence to life, and so we're kind of just rude people, and that's not a loving, uniting thing. Love doesn't insist on its own ways. It's not always about me. It's not always about what I want. It's not always about what I have to have or we have to go to my restaurant. We have to do my thing. I have to do, live in this part of town or go to this school or have this job. It's not always about that. And what if Jesus would have insisted that? What if he would have insisted on his own way in the garden and said, God, I'm not going to do this. Forget it. It's not worth it. And so we follow the lead of Christ who put aside his desires for the greater good. Love is an irritable. We're slow to anger. We don't all of a sudden fly off the handle and get mad at each other. Love isn't resentful. I like to call this being historical. You know, anybody know a historical person? Raise your hand. Nobody, just me? Oh, okay, a few other people. Historical people. I love historical people because they're the ones that always come back with, you remember when you did this? 
Do you remember when you did that? And it's like they have like a, a book full of everything, and I've already forgotten about it like 10 minutes after it happened. This actual, the word for resentful actually means this. It's the same as somebody writing something down in order to bring it up later. Could you imagine having friends who would come up to you and say, hey, uh, I just want to talk to you about this. Uh, let's see here. Yes, uh, you did this, and you did this, and you did this uh, and it, 10 years ago, and it really bothered me. Like, that would be resentful. That would be historical, and that would not be a uniter if you're meant if what you're meaning to do is just to cause harm on the other person. Now, if you're trying to clear things up, that's a whole different thing. And you probably should have done it a lot longer, a lot sooner than 10 years ago. Love, it doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. I think this is a big one. And this is one, I think, if you think about in practical terms about love, what potentially a lot of us could really struggle with, okay? Right here. We don't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoice in the truth. If we truly love our friends, we truly love the people around us, do, why would we rejoice in their sin? How can we stand off to the side and laugh at somebody's drunkenness? How can we not feel sorrow when our friends are sleeping around? How can we feel good about laughing at their vile jokes? That's an awkward one, isn't it? Try not doing that. How do we not laugh or engage in sin in movies? And I'm not trying to do all this as a list of legalisms, but the, the question has to be asked. Be like, am I being loving in this situation when these things are happening? And then all these other things come into play too of how do I interact with a person with kindness and gentleness? Why do we click on like on things on Facebook when we really probably shouldn't like them? In the words of Leon Morris, he put it this way. He said, Love must not be thought of as indifferent to moral considerations. Love must not be thought of as indifferent to moral considerations. And so love isn't indifferent to the truth. Love is not indifferent to sin. And the question is, is how do we enter into the mess? Because that's what's hard. And a lot of people want to be a part of a church where you don't have to enter the mess, where you can just kind of come here and you can be anonymous and I can come here and be anonymous and nobody really knows what's going on in our lives and then we can go home and we feel happy that we checked it off the list, that we did it today. But I think God wants us to enter the mess because he wants us to be united in love. And that's what this entire passage is really talking about. Verse seven, love bears all things. It basically protects Love, love does all these things, even when it's under strain. It engages loved ones with humility, it engages loved ones with kindness, and it moves them towards Jesus. He's our eternal love. He's our, our eternal hope. He's our eternal truth. He's the standard in which we choose to live, right? Now, we have help. The Holy Spirit comes with us and convicts us and helps us to move through life in that way and helps us to understand how to function in these messy situations, but love doesn't drag each other through the mud. Love drives us to protect innocent people, especially new believers. Love unites and creates maturity. And so if you want to become a, a mature believer, pursue love. It's not pers like pursuing a certain gift. It's pursue love. Love drives us to believe the best in people, believes all things. 
And I think this is probably a key one when you talk about unity. So many times I think our tendency as simple people is to jump to the negative rather than to the positive. Someone doesn't show up for something and you immediately think, oh man, they're terrible. Why'd they do that? We jump to the negative rather than saying, I wonder what's wrong. I wonder, I wonder if something happened. I wonder if they're okay. You know what I mean? We think the best rather than the worst. I think that's a sign of maturity to be able to, to turn the corner and to think that way rather than negatively. Love hopes all things. Love drives us to this time that we, ha- that we hope for when we have a better day with Jesus. Like we are with him and life is better than it is now. It drives us to always look for hope. It's the refusal to take failure as final. Okay, you got that? It's, hope is the refusal to take failure as final. And it's always looking for God to overcome our misery. It's being hopeful. And so if you're hurting today, that's like an indicator of love is when we have hope. Love endures all things. Love drives us to endure this world. When this world gets hard and things are happening to us and around us and we're having to take a stand for truth and doing it in a loving way, we know that it's not going to last forever and we can endure it no matter what. Love never ends. It never experiences ruin. It never runs out. It never runs short. It doesn't have an end. It doesn't have like a maximum quota and you've reached the maximum amount of love. It doesn't end and it lasts forever. And so Paul is saying, here it is. This is what it is. This is what it's not. Pursue it. And then the next few verses here, starting in verse eight, he unpacks why. Why should we do that? Because verse eight, here it goes. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it'll pass away. For we know in part what we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. I really struggled with this verse, trying to figure out what what was this part and what was this whole. And it took me a while to kind of process in my brain and figure out what this really means. But here's what it is. We are currently living in the part. And someday when we are with God, we are going to be living in the whole. So what he's saying is, is there's a different perspective here. You can pursue prophecy as a gift or you can pursue these things. But there's going to come a point in time when those are going to end because we're going to be with Jesus. Does that make sense? Like, why do we have a need to prophesy about great revelations that, coming, that are coming from God when, will we be, when we will be in front of God? Like, he doesn't need us to be his mouthpiece when he is the mouthpiece. You understand? Why do we need to have tongues and these, this gift that has been given for simple people in this simple time? which is a good thing, why, why do we need that when we're standing in front of our Savior? We don't need it anymore. And so these things that are in part come to an end. Think about it like this. We're living in the part, and proof of that is science. I love this. Science. Would we need science if we knew everything and had discovered everything? Isn't that what science is about? It's about seeking knowledge and discovery. But when we're with God, there's no more knowledge and no more things to discover. Like, he's there. 
And so we are, science is really, in a sense, proof that we live in the part. We are in need. We need something. We need discovery. We need answers. And we need knowledge. And that's how it works. Same thing can be said about God. If you think that the Bible, the entire Bible, is all there is about God, that's ridiculous, right? It's just a drop in the bucket of who he truly is. And when we're with God, you're going to be like, this is unbelievable. And it will be amazing because we will no longer be a part of the part, but we will be with the whole. We will be in the very presence of the creator. And that is a huge and major, major thing. And so in the context of what we're talking about, Paul is saying these gifts in the, in the scheme of things are pretty minor compared to this, right? And these gifts aren't going to continue to the whole, but love well. So pursue that. Verse 11, he continues on. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. It isn't just a little footnote he's sticking in there. I'm like, oh, I just think I'll throw that in there. He's saying, if you pursue these gifts only without love, you're being childish. But if you pursue love and these gifts under the banner of love, that's being mature. He's saying, let's be that way. Mature people unite, childish people divide. Verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, and then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So back in the day of uh, the Corinthian church, uh, like I said, they were big into bronze, all right? And so right here, this is a bronze mirror. I don't think anybody ever uses this. This would be really weird. Because when you look at a bronze mirror and you see a reflection, I don't know if you can see it. Can you see it? You can barely see kind of an outline of that person's face. And that's what this passage is talking about. He's saying, we see in a mirror dimly, right? But when face to face, this will all be cleared up. We will see God the way he's intended to be seen, and we will see ourselves the way we will be intended to see. James and I were also talking about this one this week. I think it was good. What we kind of came up with was none of us have ever seen ourselves the way other people see us. Have you ever thought about that? We, the only person, the only way we've ever seen ourselves is in, in a reflection that's flipped backwards or in a movie, a two-dimensional thing. But we've never seen ourselves the way someone else sees us. Does that kind of make sense? So in a sense there, we're already skewed because we, we just have a distorted reality of who we really are. But when we are before God, I think we'll see ourselves the way he intended us to be seen and we'll understand how that really works. This last week, um, I was uh, driving my daughter, uh, Isabella, to school. And uh, so it was after the, the two weeks of monsoon, and after that rain stopped, I decided to buy wipers, because that's what you do. You buy them after the monsoon of rain. So uh, we bought uh, wipers from Amazon, and I put these babies on. It took me forever. I was like, this is so complicated. I have no idea why this is. And so then about Wednesday, it starts raining again. And so Isabel and I take off in the van. We're driving, and I flip the wipers on, and I was like, this is, this is ridiculous. These wipers are horrible. 
These are the worst wipers. They are as bad as the wipers I just took off. And I'm complaining, I'm complaining, and my daughter's in the back seat, and she's hearing me. She's like, Dad, they are really bad. I'm like, thank you for at least agreeing with me. Uh, I appreciate that. And so we're, we get to school, and uh, we leave, I, and I send a message to Janelle. I was like, these wipers are terrible. We're going to have to send them back to Amazon. And she's, and she's trying to fix it all and figure out what to do. And then I pulled into the parking lot out here, and I pulled into the spot, and this is what I saw. And when I looked closer, I pulled these off my wipers, off the bottoms. And in that moment, when I got in the van, feeling as stupid as I could feel, I turned my wipers on, and it was like, I was like, this is the way it's meant to be. <laughs> I could see. And I think that's what he's talking about here. Is he's saying, you know what? In a sense, a lot of us, we just kind of have this piece of plastic on our lives that's shielding us from really seeing reality. And someday when we're in heaven, when we're in the hole, God is just going to remove that, and we're going to see so clearly. And I think that's what he's getting at as he goes through this passage and talks about it. He wraps up with this last verse here in 13. He says, now... Faith, hope, and love abide, and these three, but the greatest of these is love. I always struggled with this verse for a very, very long time. For years and years and years, I was like, how can love be better than faith and hope? I mean, faith is what gets us connected with God. Like, hope is really, like, what we're hoping, we're hoping, like, salvation, you know, with Jesus. Like, that's, the whole thing is wrapped up in those two things. But in the context of what we're talking about, of the part and the whole, those first two really will cease to exist. There's going to come a point in time when there won't be a need for faith. We'll be standing in front of our Savior. What's there to have faith in? There'll come a point in time where we really won't need hope. We'll be like, hope for what? We have it. You know what I mean? It's kind of like, ah, oh, I hope I could get a new car. And then you get a new car, and you're like, you don't have hope for a new car anymore. You have a new car. Does that make sense? And I think that's what we're looking forward to. And the reason that love is the, best, is the greatest is because it lasts. It keeps going. It doesn't end. It lasts forever. There's an old hymn. This is what it says. Uh, the hymn's called Gracious Spirit, Holy Ghost. And he puts it this way. He says, faith will vanish into sight. So the things that we can't see that we, you know, that we have faith in will be gone because we see it. Hope will be emptied in delight. We'll be so delighted. We won't have to have hope anymore because we have Jesus. Love in heaven will shine more bright. Paul's saying in this chapter, like, the ultimate pursuit is really not about the gifting. The gifting is important. God gives, us to, gives gifting to us. We're supposed to use our gifting and be in the body of Christ. But all that is under the umbrella of love, the thing that lasts forever. It's never-ending. It's undisputable. It's undeniable. And we need it so desperately. Romans 5, it's a great verse, says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a right, righteous person. So, I mean, once in a while, maybe somebody might die for someone's righteous Though perhaps for even a really good person, 
one would dare to even die. Most of us would die for our children, potentially for a friend. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? That who would ever believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's about love. It's about God's love coming into our lives. It's an eternal gift. It's very, very valuable, and it's never-ending. You see, Jesus unites us relationally to the Father through the love of the cross. And he also does that. He unites us relationally together as a church, as a body, through the love of the cross. And that's why love is so important. It's so important that that is the thing, the gospel, the love of the gospel, which unites us. It's the love of the gospel that brings us together. It's the love that comes, overcomes division. It's love that overcomes our selfishness, our rudeness. The, the times that we feel envious of other people, love overcomes all that. And it is the great eternal uniter. And that's something to be thankful for. And I think that's what this passage is talking about. You see how it's not really about marriage? It is. It's not pr primarily about that. It's about how the church can function as a united body. That's how it can work. And so as we continue on here in the next couple weeks, that's really it. This whole thing comes together underneath the banner of love. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C.com. Thank you.